Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Our good friend and historian Bill Federer will be here today to share some amazing stories of answered prayers. And our ministry president, Dr. Kenneth Hill, will have some encouraging thoughts from God's Word. Watchman on the Wall is here to make sense of the nonsense and bring clarity to the world around us. One of the ways we do that is through our brand new podcast. You can now listen to insightful interviews, current events from a biblical perspective, and prophecy that helps you make sense of the world around you. Subscribe today to the Watchman on the Wall podcast wherever you get your podcasts. From the early days of America to the present, this nation faced overwhelming challenges. But men and women of courage step forward in faith to see obstacles miraculously overcome. Bill Federer is here to share some amazing stories of answered prayers. History has rightly been called His Story. God orchestrates all of reality. His hand is in everything. In 1778, General George Washington recognized God's work in the American Revolution when he said, The hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all this, the course of the war, that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith. The hand of God is very evident all throughout the history of America. On the program with me today to discuss miracles in American history is Bill Federer. He is a historian, the author of over 20 books, and he'll be one of our featured speakers at our virtual summer prophecy conference that starts on July the 30th, which, by the way, it's not too late to get access to and and register for. Just go to swrc.com to register today. Bill, thanks for joining me on the program today. Well, James, great to be with you. Tell me a little bit about yourself. How did you become one of America's top historians? Well, the first book I wrote came off the press in 1994, and it's a collection of God and country quotes. So Abigail Adams and William Bradford and Columbus and Jonathan Edwards, Franklin, Lincoln, Jefferson, Washington, just a collection, and it's 840-some-odd pages. The book sold a half million copies. It's been used on the floor of Congress. Even the Supreme Court has cited it by name in a case in 2014, City of Greece case, where they had a city council member open with prayer in Jesus' name, and the ACLU sued. And the U.S. Supreme Court, Anthony Kennedy wrote the decision, said even our Continental Congress opened with prayer in Jesus' name, and so it's okay for him to do it. And then it gives the prayer, and then it cites my book as the source of the prayer. But that was an honor that was not expected. Focus on the Family sold it, and, and even... Southwest Radio Church picked it up, and I did some of the very first interviews on the book with Kenneth Hill and Larry Spargimino and Bill Hutchings and Bob Glaze and so forth. And then the PCT Network asked me to do a television program, and it's aired on DirecTV, on Roku, and different channels, and it's called Faith in History. It's a half-an-hour program. And then the daily radio spot, American Minute, and many stations air that. It's just a one-minute spot of what happened on each date in American history. It's turned into a career where I speak across the country, and the idea is we have a cancel culture that's trying to erase God in our country's heritage, and worse than that, now they're trying to say Christianity is the evil in the world, Mm -hmm. and it's responsible for everything from slavery to taking land from Indians, and I have to say, wait a second, we need to stop. We need to get the truth out there. Lincoln was a white Republican, and he issued the Emancipation Proclamation to free the slaves. 
Lo and behold, it's not a black-white issue. It's a Republican-Democrat issue. It's not a hardware problem. It's a software problem. And so I began to go through and realize that in America that the abolitionist movement started to begin with. It didn't start in Islam. It didn't start in Hinduism, where they have the caste system, and the lowest caste has to clean the sewers. It didn't start in China, where your worth is dependent on your utility. It started with Christians in America, predominantly the Quakers and Methodists, and then it spread. But the idea is we need to get true history out there, because they have now got in control of the public schools. They do the movies. They are involved with all the social media, and they're setting a false narrative that needs to be corrected. And so that's what really motivates me to write these books. I also sent out a daily history email called the American Minute. Well, Bill, we're very excited that you're going to be speaking at our virtual Summer Prophecy Conference, which again starts July the 30th. You're also going to be one of our featured speakers at the Is It Too Late Conference in Columbus, Ohio, October 28th through the 30th. Now, without giving too much away, can you give me a little hint about your conference topics? I did a book on the history of socialism. And socialism goes back to Plato. He says democracy won't last because it's based on the people having morals and virtue and self-control. And if you give them a choice of giving up their life or giving up their virtue, they'll always give up their virtue to save their life. Ancient Israel's attempt to do this lasted longer because they had a big magnet in the sky called God, but the ancient Greeks didn't have it. And so they ended up tolerating each other, which was great. Then they tolerated people that were a little bit off, then people that were a lot off, till finally they were tolerating lawlessness and chaos and immorality, and it turned into insecurity for life and property, and the people began to say, can't someone come along and fix this mess? And that's when some governor comes along, and he says, I can fix it, I just need some emergency powers. And he all smiles at first, but finally he stands up in the chariot of state holding the reins of power, he's revealed as the tyrant. So Plato's model is that democracy without morals and virtue ends in chaos out of which a tyrant arises, and this tyrant will institute a structured society of the ruling class and the ruled class. So socialism is a structured society of a ruling class and then all the rest of the people who are the abdomen of iron and bronze, they're the ruled class. And Anyway, I go through the French Revolution and their idea of trying to set it up with everybody having an equal amount of stuff turns into beheading 30,000 people in Paris. And then I go through Karl Marx and sort of work our way up to the present. It's a fascinating book that sort of like Wizard of Oz pulls back the curtain and you can see that socialism is in effect a bait and switch. It promises heaven delivers hell. I tell people, imagine if older fish could tell younger fish to stay away from shiny things dangling in the water like a fishing hook, but they can't. So every new generation of younger fish sees this shiny thing, they're attracted to it, and they get caught. Socialism is a shiny thing. It's free food, free clothes, free education, free welfare. Everybody has free, free, free. That free is attractive. The problem is you're attracted to it, you bite, and you end up realizing that the Gerald Ford quote, the government that's big enough to give you everything you want is big enough to take away everything you have. Hmm. I'm talking with author and historian Bill Federer. And, Bill, I want to talk about miracles in American history. Now, if I understand correctly, your wife Susie was the one who actually compiled this two-volume set of your writings. Tell me how these books came about. So I send out a daily history email called American Minute, and it is things that happen on each state in American history. And there's famous scientists and explorers and Sir Isaac Newton and Lewis and Clark and so forth. And my wife decided to pick out the best ones. And her idea of the best is there's a crisis, they pray, things turn around. And then the second volume was revivals. And in the times of crises, people turn to the Lord. And so first Great Awakening, second Great Awakening. And 
They're fascinating stories from the Revolutionary War, where the colony of Massachusetts has a day of fasting and prayer, and that exact day was when the British were going to attack George Washington on Dorchester Heights. But a storm comes out of nowhere, and it's so bad that the British have to give up their attack. Then I go through the Battle of Brooklyn Heights, where it's the largest battle of the entire Revolutionary War, and you have close to 10,000 British troops attack George Washington from behind. He's like facing the water where all the ships are in the harbor. And 3,000 Americans are killed, only 300 British. It looks like it's hopeless. But the Continental Congress had declared a day of prayer, and that night George Washington decides to evacuate his troops. And so he's getting every boat he can find, and they're rowing across the East River, which is still as glass. It's really smooth. And it looks great, except the sun starts to come up, and he had only moved half his army. And looked terrible, because now he's a sitting duck, but a fog comes. And Washington's chief of intelligence, Ben Talmadge, says, as the dawn of the next day approached, those of us who remained in our trenches became very anxious for our own safety. But as the dawn appeared, a fog settled on both encampments. I recollect this peculiar providential occurrence perfectly well. And so very dense was the fog that you could scarcely discern a man at six yards distance. We carried until the sun had risen, but the fog remained as dense as ever. And so Washington, under cover of fog, is able to evacuate the entire rest of the Continental Army And then the fog lifts, the British charge, and no one's there. And so it was the last chance the British had to stop the revolution before it started, right, to capture the entire American army all at once. And George Washington later said, the hand of providence has been so conspicuous in the course of the war that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith. And, of course, Webster's 1828 Dictionary says, by providence it is understood the will of God. I heard you speak at a conference a while back and you said that you researched back 6,000 years in recorded history, and you discovered something unique about America. Tell me about that, would you? That's a book called Who is the King in America? And I decided that I'd go back to the beginning of writing, Sumerian, cuneiform, on clay tablets in the Mesopotamian Valley, and you've got Nimrod, Tower of Babel story. You've got 2,000 years of Egyptian pharaohs. You've got kings of Assyria with Nineveh as the capital, and then conquered by Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar as the king, conquered by Cyrus of Persia, and then Darius, and conquered by Alexander the Great, and conquered by the Romans. And as the centuries go on, these kingdoms keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But one thing is clear, it's all kings. It's all top-down. Kings rule through fear. You do what they say, or they kill you. And as the centuries go on, with weapons improving, You get killed not just with a rock, but then you can get killed with a bronze weapon or an iron weapon or a big, long, phalanx spear that Alexander the Great's soldiers had or a scimitar sword that the Muslims had or gunpowder that the Chinese invented. The weapon improves, but it's that same selfish fallen nature that you observe on a playground where you got a bully or a bunch of junior high girls in a clique where one of them is the diva. You put some people in the woods, one of them is an Indian chief, and you put them in an inner city, one of them is a gang leader. And, And all a king is is a glorified gang leader. And it's a hierarchical system. You're friends with the king, you're more equal. You're not friends with the king, you're less equal. You're an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason, or you're a slave. And so the centuries went on, and the king of England was the most powerful king that planet Earth had ever seen. Sun never set on the British Empire. He was a globalist. He had India, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, Barbados, Bermuda, Jamaica, and America. He was like a one-world government guy. And America's founders decided they didn't like this globalist telling us what to do, so they broke away and flipped it and made the people the king. 
And so it's a polarity change in the flow of power. Instead of top down, it's bottom up. It's between the people. And then I go through where the founders got these ideas, the Bible. But what part of the Bible? The first 400-year period when Israel came out of Egypt. It's called the Hebrew Republic. And it's a total anomaly in world history where you have pharaohs and nimrods and caesars and czars. Here you have Israel for 400 years. They don't have a king. This is the pre-King Saul period. And it worked because every single citizen was taught the law. And every citizen was personally accountable to God to follow the law. And it worked for 400 years until the priests stopped teaching the law, and every man did what was right in their own eyes. It turns into lawlessness and chaos and sexual promiscuity. And they finally go to Samuel the prophet, and they say, this self-government system's not working anymore. We want to be like all the other countries. We want a king. Samuel cries, and the Lord tells him, they did not reject you. They rejected me. And so America's colonial founding fathers looked back to ancient Israel, this first 400-year period out of Egypt, as the model of a people-ruled country, bottom-up, versus a king-ruled country, top-down. That's what that book's about. I tell people, do you like deciding where to live? Where there's a government that controls everything, it decides. If you're a Christian and you're in Cairo, Egypt, you're called garbage people because you can't hold a job higher than a Muslim. You've got to dig through garbage every day. If you're in India and you're in the lowest caste, you're condemned to cleaning sewers. Even if you do a good job, you can't become a Brahmin. They're near divinity in the Hindu belief system. Or if you're in an atheistic country, your work is dependent on your usefulness to the state. But in America, you're equal, not because you're a Muslim male or you're useful to the state or you're a Brahmin in the highest Hindu caste, you're equal because you're made in the image of God. That's an incredible summary of the founding of America going through all of the world history there. We're talking, though, about miracles in American history. This book does contain 32 stories of answered prayer, stories that in times of crisis in our country, people prayed and those crises were turned around. Would you share a couple of more of those stories? Sure. We have Victory of Saratoga. The British had incited terrorism. They would go to the Indians and promise them money for scalps. And so these Indians would go in front of the British Army, coming down from Canada with General Johnny Burgoyne, and they would scalp. But the problem was the Indians could not tell who is a patriotic American and who is a British loyalist. We all sort of look the same to them. And so they get close to a British settlement and they kill a woman. At nighttime, the Indians come in with their scalps on sticks, and they dance around the fire doing their scalp dance. And this British soldier, a loyalist, sees this long scalp and recognizes it as his fiancée, Jane McRae. The British soldier is named David Jones. And so they pressure this General Donnie Burgoyne to meet with the Indians and tell them to tone it down. The Indians get offended and leave. And now you have an entire British army in the middle of the dense New York forest, and the British army doesn't know where they're at. The Indians had been their eyes and ears. And the Americans gained the advantage, and they forced them to surrender at the Battle of Saratoga. 6,000 British troops surrender. Again, this is the most powerful military force in the world. And it ricochets over to Paris, and Ben Franklin goes into the King of France, King Louis XVI, and when he hears that we captured 6,000 British The king of France says, maybe I'll get involved in the war. As soon as he does, it turns into a global war because Britain and France have colonies all around the world. And so now instead of Britain just focusing on us, it has to stretch its military around the world. Pretty significant. And right after the Battle of Saratoga, the Continental Congress issues the first national day of thanksgiving to Almighty God. 
and they even mentioned the name Jesus. They said that through the marriage of mediation, here it is, November 1st, 1777, after the Battle of Saratoga, with one heart and one voice, join the penitent confession of our manifold sins, that it may please God through the merits of Jesus Christ to forgive and blot them out, and that under the providence of Almighty God, secure for these United States the greatest of all human blessings, independence and peace. The hero of the Battle of Saratoga was Benedict Arnold, right? He had been a courageous general, you know, charging in front of the enemy. And at the battle, he leads a flanking charge, very successful. He captures a redoubt, which is a fortified place where the British were shooting from. He gets wounded in the leg, but he's considered the hero. He gets a job with his wounded leg to be military governor of Philadelphia. While he's there, he meets a young woman whose family are closet loyalists, and they're the Shippen family. Her name is Peggy Shippen. And so they get married, and when Benedict Arnold gets passed over for some promotion, because the Continental Congress said, hey, we want to have equal amount of generals from the different colonies, and Rhode Island already has a number of them, so Benedict Arnold's from Rhode Island, so we're just going to skip over him. And so people that had been below Benedict Arnold are now promoted above him, and it's a little burr under his saddle. And his wife, Peggy Shippen, says, well, you know, if you were in the British Army, they would appreciate you. Mm -hmm. You're such a good general, blah, blah, blah. She finally gets him to meet with a British spy named John Andre. By this time, Benedict Arnold's transferred to West Point, which is the biggest military base in America. And it's on the Hudson River, which goes north and south, cutting the colonies in half, with the New England colonies on one side and the Middle Southern colonies on the other. And she gets him to betray West Point on the very day that George Washington was coming to inspect West Point. So we would lose our general and lose our biggest military base. He gives the map to the spy, John Andre, who goes across the American lines, goes across no man's land, and he's one bridge from getting onto the British territory. When out of the woods comes some German Hessian soldiers. If he would have kept his mouth shut, he could have crossed, but instead he blurts out, it's finally good to see some men on our side. And the soldiers say, what do you mean our side? Well, you're German Hessians. They go, no, we're Americans dressed as German Hessians to try to find people who are spies. And he goes, you know, you can never tell nowadays. You know, and he tries to talk his way out of it. They search him once. They search him twice. They're about to let him go when they make him take off his boot. And in the stocking of his boot is the map of West Point. And they capture him. Benedict Arnold hears about it. He flees on a ship called the Vulture. And American General Nathaniel Green writes, Treason of the blackest dye was yesterday discovered. General Arnold, who commanded at West Point, was about to give the American cause a deadly wound, if not fatal stab. Happily, the treason had been timely discovered to prevent the fatal misfortune. The providential train of circumstances which led to its discovery affords the most convincing proof that the liberties of America are the object of divine protection. And the Continental Congress is so happy they have another day of Thanksgiving, and it ends with fervent supplications to the God of all grace to cause the knowledge of Christianity to spread over all the earth. I just think it's amazing. Here they're thanking God Washington wasn't captured, West Point wasn't captured, and they're thanking God that Christianity spread over all the earth. In our Resource Center today, we have Bill Federer's series, Miracles in American History. Volume 1 and 2 of the books can be yours for a gift of $40 or more. And Volumes 1 through 4 of the DVDs are yours for a gift of $65 or more when you call 1-800-652-1144. You can also order online, swrc.com. Dr. Kenneth Hill comes to the microphone now to share some thoughts about being forgiven and being forgiving 
and being thankful for all of God's blessings. I have a passage that I want to share with you in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, and verses 12 through 17. And as I share it with you, listen carefully, please. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. I wanted to share that with you because it's such a wonderful presence of encouragement, really. You enter into it when you read it, when you listen to it. It is indeed a human author, that is the Apostle Paul, writing as he's been given the words from the Holy Spirit himself. Now, if you read this passage, the verses prior to this passage, written by the Apostle Paul, tell us what to put away from us, the bad things that need to be thrown off. And then this commands us to be the elect of God and to put on these good things. And quite honestly, the beautiful command is for a forgiving, forgiven person. It's for a forgiving, forgiven person. So we forgive as we have been forgiven. As God has forgiven us, we should also forgive others. With all the many blessings that God wants to put on us, we need to be sure to put off all the bad things and be prepared for it. And then when God gives us these things, we need to be sure that we also include charity. And that's what the verse here says. Charity is the love of others that causes you to donate to help individuals in need. Here it's seen as the bond that guarantees perfection or perfectness. So then we who have charity are then to let God's peace rule in us. In our daily efforts, we're to work faithfully in the name of the Lord Jesus and be thankful for all of God's blessings. And then the richness of God himself comes in blessing us. How wonderful it is. But God is not faithless as he talks to us. He's faithful in all things. And he says, we are as the elect of God, holy and beloved. We are those merciful folks with kindness and humility of mind. We need to have meekness of spirit. We need to be long-suffering, meaning we are full of time of patience, forbearing one another, forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, 
even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity. And charity is the bond of perfection. It shows the perfection that God has for us. Charity. When I think of charity, I think of love. It's one of those loves found in Scripture. What love is it? Well, it's not the love of a husband and wife. It's not the love of God and man. But it's the love of humankind for humankind. We are concerned about our fellow man and fellow woman. We are willing to assist them and help them when they have a need because that's our responsibility as a Christian, as one who is elect of God. That means we are put into the body of Christ. If we are elect of God, if we are a follower of Christ, we are to have charity, love for humanity, love for people in need, love for people that sometimes we don't even know. Have you been moved by, oh, I don't know, a video or an audio presentation that you've heard about some family in need or some person in great need? And maybe you will go to the computer and donate something or You might go to church and put something in the offering for that specific project. Well, that's good. That is part of charity. It's not all of charity, but it's part of charity. And we're told to put charity on in the bond of perfectness. And we are perfect in Christ because of the charity that we have in our hearts. Charity is the love that I show towards someone who has need. Do you know anybody that doesn't have need today? Everybody I know has need. I see families, and they're almost always a family that's in some sort of distress. Somebody asked me if I knew a perfect family, and I don't. I don't know a perfect family. I've seen some that I thought were almost perfect, but they weren't perfect in every way. We'll see those families, I guess, when we get to glory. But what Paul is writing here in Colossians is to tell us how to live our lives on this plane of existence called earth. We're to let the word of Christ live within us. And it should be giving us the wisdom that God would want us to have. We should have grace in our hearts to the Lord. We should be concerned about others with the many blessings that he gives us, we are to give praise to the Lord Jesus and we're to give thanks to God at all times to the Father, the Heavenly Father gets our thanks through Jesus Christ. It's because of Christ that we know the Father. It's because Christ has brought us in to relationship with the Father that we can indeed live our lives properly in these trying times. 
one week from today will be the start of our first ever virtual prophecy conference online and on demand all access passes are available right now with the all access pass you can watch presentations by 10 different speakers hours and hours of prophecy teaching that you don't want to miss register today by visiting our conference page on our website swrc.com or simply call 1-800-652-1144. Lord willing, we'll be back Monday, continuing to make sense of the world around us. Watchman on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.